Lesson 4 for April 16 to 22. Get up and walk, faith and healing. Sabbath afternoon, April 16. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and for the opportunity of studying it each week. And as this week we look at another very fascinating topic, we pray that your Holy Spirit will be here to guide us. You care for us in physical illness and death, but most of all, you care about our spiritual illness and our eternal death. And you've provided a remedy for that through Jesus Christ. Please bless us each one this week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our memory text is Matthew chapter 9 and verse 5. Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise and walk? Let's read that again, Matthew chapter 9 and verse 5. Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise and walk? If you made a list of what you most dreaded in life, what would it look like? For most of us, the list would include a family member dying or even you yourself dying. And while that's certainly understandable, think about just how earth-centred that is. It's all about our lives now. Is this really and truly what we ought to dread most? The loss of life on earth, especially when it never lasts that long anyway? If God were to make a list of what he dreads most, it would certainly deal with the loss of either of our families or our own eternal life. Sure, God cares about physical illness and death, but most of all he cares about spiritual illness and eternal death. Though Jesus healed many people and even brought the dead back to life, it was only temporary. They all died a physical death one way or another, with the exception of the saints that Jesus resurrected at his own resurrection. Despite all that it accomplished in our behalf, the plan of salvation did not spare us from earthly sickness and earthly death. With this in mind, let's consider several stories of healing, both physical and spiritual, and see what important lessons about faith we can derive from them. Sunday, April 17, Touching the Untouchable After preaching the Sermon on the Mount, where he described the principles of the kingdom of God, Jesus re-encountered the kingdom of Satan, a cold, dark place filled with decaying people groaning for redemption, a place whose principles are often contrary to everything for which he stands. And at that time, one of the greatest examples of just how wretched and fallen Satan's realm had become could be seen in the disease of leprosy. Though occasionally used as a form of divine punishment, such as in the case of Miriam, in the larger context of the Bible, it's a powerful and horrific example of just what it means to live in a fallen and broken world. Let's go back and look at Miriam in Numbers chapter 12, verses 9 to 12. So the anger of the Lord was aroused against them, and he departed. 
And when the cloud departed from above the tabernacle, suddenly Miriam became leprous, as white as snow. Then Aaron turned toward Miriam, and there she was, a leper. So Aaron said to Moses, O my Lord, please do not lay this sin on us, in which we have done foolishly and in which we have sinned. Please do not let her be as one dead, whose flesh is half consumed, when he comes out of his mother's womb. Question. Read Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 to 4. What importance can be seen in the fact that in healing this leper, Jesus touched him? For example, let's also look at Leviticus chapter 13, verses 44 to 50. But first of all, Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 to 4, where Jesus cleanses a leper. When he had come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him, and behold, a leper came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Then Jesus put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. Immediately his leprosy was cleansed, and Jesus said to him, See that you tell no one, but go your way, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. And we'll also compare that with Leviticus chapter 13, verses 44 to 50. See if you can pick in the last passage where Jesus stepped out of line, as far as others were concerned. Leviticus 13, verse 44. He is a leprous man. He is unclean. The priest shall surely pronounce him unclean. His sore is on his head. Now the leper on whom the sore is, his clothes shall be torn and his head bare, and he shall cover his moustache and cry, Unclean, unclean, and shall be unclean. All the days he has the sore, he shall be unclean. He is unclean, and he shall dwell alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. Also, if a garment has a leprous plague in it, whether it is a woolen garment or a linen garment, whether it is in the warp or woof of linen or wool, whether in leather or in anything made of leather, and if the plague is greenish or reddish in the garment or in the leather, whether in the warp or in the woof or in anything made of leather, it is a leprous plague and shall be shown to the priest. The priest shall examine the plague and isolate that which has the plague seven days." The leper kneels before Jesus and says, If you are willing, you can make me clean, in Matthew chapter 8, verse 2. The Greek word for can is dynamai, like dynamite in English. It means full of power. If you are willing, you are full of power and can change my life. Jesus says he is willing to heal the leper and immediately does just that. The fact that Jesus touched him must have sent shivers through the multitudes who saw what had happened. Surely, as he did on other occasions, such as the next recorded healing, Jesus could have just spoken the word and the man would be healed. Why did he touch him, though? From Desire of Ages, page 266, we read, The work of Christ in cleansing the leper from his terrible disease is an illustration of his work in cleansing the soul from sin. The man who came to Jesus was full of leprosy. Its deadly poison permeated his whole body. The disciples sought to prevent their master from touching him, for he who touched the leper became himself unclean. But in laying his hand upon the leper, Jesus received no defilement. His touch imparted life-giving power. The leprosy was cleansed. Thus it is with the leprosy of sin, deep-rooted, deadly, and impossible to be cleansed by human power.
End of quote. Perhaps by touching the leper, Jesus showed that no matter how bad our sin is, he will draw close to those who are willing to be forgiven, healed, and cleansed from it. And to finish the day, whom do you know, right now, who is suffering from the kind of thing we view today as leprosy? That is, anything that makes people recoil in horror and judgment. How can the example of Jesus help us to understand how to relate to that person? Monday, April 18, The Roman and the Messiah There's a good reason the book of Daniel spends a lot of time dealing with Rome. Actually, why don't we have a look at some texts there. First of all, Daniel 7, verses 7 and 8. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots, and there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking pompous words. And verses 19 to 21, Then I wished to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth of iron and its nails of bronze, which devoured, broke in pieces, and trampled the residue with its feet. And the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn which came up, before which three fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth which spoke pompous words, whose appearance was greater than his fellows, I was watching, and the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them. And Daniel chapter 8 verses 9 to 12, And out of one of them came a little horn which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. And it grew up to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the host and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. He even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifices were taken away, and the places of his sanctuary was cast down. Because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices, and he cast truth down to the ground. He did all this and prospered. And in chapter 8, verses 23 to 25, in the and in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their fullness, a king shall arise, having fierce features, who understands sinister schemes. His power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. He shall destroy fearfully. He shall prosper and thrive. He shall destroy the mighty and also the holy people. Through his cunning he shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule, and he shall exalt himself in his heart. He shall destroy many in their prosperity. Prosperity. He shall even rise against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without human means. And that's because of its great power, which was prevalent also at the time of Christ. Nevertheless, a Roman officer, not only a symbol of the power of Rome, but an expression of that power, comes to Jesus. The man is helpless in the face of the common trials and tragedies that beset us all. 
What a lesson about the limits of what earthly powers can do. The greatest and most influential leaders, the richest men and women, stand helpless against many of the common struggles of life. Truly, without divine help, what hope do any of us have? Question. Read Matthew chapter 5. Sorry, Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 to 13. What important truths about faith and what it means to have faith are revealed in this story? What should it say to us as Seventh-day Adventists, given the privileges we have? Matthew chapter 8, beginning at verse 5. Now, when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof. But only speak a word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, Go, and he goes, and to another, Come, and he comes, and to my servant, Do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard it, he marvelled and said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go your way, and as you have believed, so let it be done for you. And his servant was healed that same hour. A centurion was a Roman military officer who generally oversaw somewhere between 80 to 100 soldiers. Serving in the army for about 20 years, he was not permitted to have a legal family. Thus, the centurion's servant might have been his only real family. In that culture, the only person more despised than a Gentile like this would have been a leper. So, this offer perhaps assumes that Jesus wouldn't want to enter his home, even though Jesus says that he will. By asking just for the word of Jesus, not his actual presence... The centurion demonstrates great faith that speaks to us today. Jesus' word is as powerful as his touch. To this centurion, for Jesus to heal someone wasn't a difficult thing. It was akin to a military officer giving orders to a soldier, which happened all the time. Also, look at what Jesus says in Matthew eight, eleven, and 12. What a stern warning to those who have been given great privileges. We as Seventh-day Adventists also are greatly privileged and should take heed. 11 and 12 read, And I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so to finish today, what daily practices and choices do you make? More important, how do these choices impact your faith? What can you do to make choices that will cause your faith to grow? Tuesday, April 19, Demons and Pigs 
question. Read Matthew chapter 8, verses 25 through to 34. What do both these accounts teach us about the power of God? How can we draw comfort from what we see here about His power, especially as we struggle with things so much greater than ourselves? Well, Matthew chapter 8, beginning at verse 25. Then his disciples came to him and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us, we are perishing. But he said to them, Why are you fearful, O you of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. So the men marveled, saying, Who can this be, that even the winds and the sea obey him? When he had come to the other side, to the country of the Gergesenes, there met him two demon-possessed men, coming out of the tombs, exceedingly fierce, so that no one could pass that way. And suddenly they cried out, saying, What have we to do with you, Jesus, you Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a good way off from them there was a herd of many swines feeding. So the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, permit us to go away into the herd of swine. And he said to them, Go. So, when they had come out, they went into the herd of swine, and suddenly the whole herd of swine ran violently down the steep place into the sea and perished in the water. Then those who kept them fled, and they went away into the city and told everything, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to depart from their region." In Jewish thought, it was the prerogative of God alone to rule over nature and demons. After calming a violent storm with simple words earlier in the chapter, Jesus steps onto the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, in not only Gentile territory, but where some demon-possessed men lived. Mark chapter 5, verses 1 to 20, and Luke chapter 8, verses 26 to 39, add details to the story of the demon-possessed men. The demons identify themselves as legion. A legion in the military was 6,000 soldiers. The demons were sent into 2,000 pigs. Many have wondered why the demons asked to be sent into the pigs. One tradition thought that the demons most detested empty wandering. They preferred a home of some type, even if it was an unclean pig. Another tradition taught that demons were afraid of the water, and Jesus himself even makes reference to demons passing through waterless places, looking for rest, as in Matthew chapter 12, verse 43, when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest and finds none. There were also Jewish traditions that taught that demons could be destroyed prior to the final apocalyptic day of the Lord. Yet, the most important point is this. The destructive condition of the men in this story is exactly the destructive condition that Satan desires for God's children. But Jesus completely changed their lives. All that Satan seeks to do in our lives, Jesus can and will undo for those who choose to give themselves to Christ. Otherwise, we are helpless against Satan. We are either on one side or the other in the great controversy. No matter how stark and uncompromising it sounds, Jesus couldn't have expressed this truth more clearly than he did when he said in Luke 11.23, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Which side we're on, 
depends upon us. And so to finish today, read John chapter 10, verse 10. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. How does this apply not just to the demoniacs, but to ourselves and to our lives? In what ways can and should we experience what we are promised here? Wednesday, April 20, Get Up and Walk In Monday's lesson, we noted that Jesus said that he hadn't found anyone in Israel with such great faith. But during these same hours in Israel, there was a man who had reached a place where his desire for healing of the heart was even greater than for healing of his body. Let's read about that in Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 to 8. And we'll ask the question... What great hope should we take from this for ourselves regarding the promise of forgiveness for our sins, no matter what they have been or the damage they have done? We'll also check uh, a couple of other verses as well. Romans 4.7, 1 John 1.9 1, and 1 John 2.12. But first, let's go to Matthew chapter 9 and verse 1. So he got into a boat, crossed over and came to his own city. Then, behold, they brought to him a paralytic man lying on a bed. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven you. And at once some of the scribes said within themselves, This man blasphemes. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Arise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, Arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. And he arose and departed to his house. Now, when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God, who had given such power to men. And we'll look at Romans chapter 4, verse 7. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. And the old faithful, 1 John 1, 9, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And 1 John chapter 2, and verse 12. I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. How fascinating that the first thing Jesus dealt with when the paralytic was brought before him was the man's spiritual condition. Jesus obviously knew exactly what the real problem was. Despite the man's wretched physical state, Christ knew that the deeper issue was the man's guilt over what must have been a very sinful life. Hence, knowing the man's desire for forgiveness, Jesus utters what would have to be the greatest and most comforting words for anyone who understands the reality and the cost of sins. As in verse 2, your sins are forgiven you. Ellen White adds, in Desire of Ages, page 267, it was not physical restoration he desired so much as relief from the burden of sin. 
If he could see Jesus and receive the assurance of forgiveness and peace with heaven, he would be content to live or die according to God's will. End of quote. A Seventh-day Adventist pastor often preached about having enough faith to not be healed. This is the greatest faith of all, when we look deeper than our physical circumstances and instead focus on our eternal circumstances. So often, our prayer requests are about our physical needs, and God does care about these things. But in his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said we are to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, Matthew 6.33. Thus, in the end, despite our immediate physical needs, how crucial that we keep eternal things ever before us in a world where so much is only temporal and fleeting. And so to finish today, whatever our physical struggles, even in the worst case scenario, they will always and only be temporary. Why is it critical that we never forget this truth? Thursday, April 21. Letting the dead bury the dead. Question. Read Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 to 22. What is Jesus saying to these men here about what it means to follow him? Matthew 8, beginning at verse 18. And when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave a command to depart to the other side. Then a certain scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Then another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Follow me, and let the dead bury their own dead. First, in Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 to 22, we see two men approach Jesus with the desire to be his disciples. Both are sincere, and yet, both seem to be held back by something. Jesus, who knows all our thoughts, goes straight to the heart of the matter. He questions whether the first man is really willing to give up everything, including his own bed, to follow him. This does not necessarily mean that a person will lose all earthly possessions if he or she follows Jesus, but simply that a person needs to be ready to do so. Jesus then asks the second man whether he's truly willing to put Jesus ahead of his own family. At first glance, his words to the second man seem very harsh. All the man wanted to do was bury his father. Why couldn't he do that first and then follow Jesus, especially when in the Jewish faith it was considered part of obeying the fifth commandment to ensure that one's parents were properly buried? However, some interpreters argue that the man's father wasn't yet dead or even at the point of death. Instead, the man was basically saying to Jesus, Let me get everything with my family all worked out and then I will follow you. Hence Jesus' response. Another call to discipleship is found in Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 to 13, with the call to Matthew, a despised tax collector. Jesus knew the man's heart, which was obviously open to truth, as his reaction to the call showed. 
Jesus surely knew what reaction his calling someone like Matthew would bring, which it did, as the texts reveal. From our perspective today, it's hard to see just how upsetting to the status quo the call to someone like Matthew would be to the people back then. What we see here is another example of just how universal the call of the gospel really is. So, to finish today, read Matthew 9 and verse 13. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Though the context is different, how does the principle apply even today, even when we substitute the idea of animal sacrifice with the sacrifice of Jesus? That is, how can we be careful that we don't let religious beliefs or practices, no matter how right, get in the way of doing what really matters to God? Friday, April 22. The Germans have a saying, Einmal ist keinmal. It means, literally, one time is no time. It's an idiomatic expression for the idea that if something happens only once, then it doesn't count. It doesn't matter. If it happens only once, it might as well never have happened at all. Whether you agree or not, think about this idea in context of Thursday's study, when Jesus said to the man who wanted first to bury his father and then to be his disciple, Follow me, and let the dead bury their own dead. Matthew 8.22 What did Jesus mean by implying that the man, a living man, was dead? Well, if einmal est keinmal... If one time is no time, then to live upon this earth only once, with no eternity to follow, then you might as well have never been born at all. You might as well be dead now. Let's look at John chapter 3 and verse 18. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Secular thinkers who believe in no afterlife have groused over the meaninglessness of a life that exists here once only, and for quite a short time too, before dissipating for eternity. What can it possibly mean, they have asked, if after this short stint we are forever gone and forever forgotten? No wonder then that Jesus said what he did. He was seeking to point the man to a reality greater than what this world, in and of itself, offered. And that brings us to our three discussion questions for this week. 1. With the idea presented above, go back and read the story in Matthew when Jesus said what he did to the man about burying his father. What should this tell us about how critical it is to keep a big picture? And when we say big, we mean real big in mind with all that we do? How does our theology help us to understand just how big the picture really is? 2. We don't always know God's will for physical healing, but we do always know His will for spiritual healing. 
In what way should this affect your prayer life? And three, what are the things that are most important to you? Make a list and bring that list to class. What can you learn from your priorities? What do our priorities teach us about ourselves and about our view of the world, of God, and of one another? How different would the list be if a group of atheists were doing the same thing? Inside Story Our mission story this week is a continuation of last week's story titled An Amazing Ride, and this is part two. In part two, we continue with first-hand stories from the Solomon Islands as told by Carol Boehm. One of the great needs on the nearby island of Savo was for a water tank. The Seventh-day Adventist on the island gave a tank to a church of another denomination, amazing the priest and the entire congregation. They wondered why Adventists would care whether or not they had fresh water to drink, and hearts began to soften. Recently, young people from our Mabonka church went to camp at Savo and to quietly witness to the villagers. When they arrived, they were overwhelmed to be given a welcome fit for a king. They were even invited to hold their Sabbath worship in the non-Adventist church, with many of the locals attending. In turn, our youth attended their church service on Sunday. Our pastor was even asked to speak. What topic did he choose? The Sabbath. Nerves of steel, I tell you. Our young people made friends with many of the local youth, some of whom have told them that they want to become Adventists because they are a people of the word and people of action. They have been invited back to hold meetings and surrounding villages have begun to show an interest in attending. Another story comes from the beautiful island of Choisel. The regional director and his team were holding outreach meetings there when they heard about a woman who had been living in the bush by herself for 30 years and had turned feral. She had been living with a pack of 10 dogs. It took a few days for them to find her, but when they did... They were shocked to see a wild woman with fiery eyes and completely unkempt hair and nails. They gently befriended her and asked her to come back to the village with them. She did. Slowly the community reached out to her and she began to attend some of the meetings. We have just gotten word that she has responded to a call to give her life to Jesus. And you won't be surprised to know that there's more to come next week because it says at the bottom... To be continued in next week's Inside Story. This week's lesson has been read by Dr. Percy Harold in the studios of Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired. It is brought to you by the Sabbath School Department and through the services of Hope Channel. Remember, God is always faithful. <laughs> <laughs>